2: Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Wildland fire plays an essential role in the ecological process and acts as a natural change agent. In the past two decades, however, a rapid escalation of difficult wildfire behavior, accompanied by significant increases in risks to responders and citizens, home and property losses, costs and threats to communities and landscapes, have been observed fire management decisions are based on the best available science, knowledge, and experience and used to evaluate risk versus gain. The challenges for fire management are formidable and growing or complex each day. Wildland fire management responsibilities are characterized by a patchwork of jurisdictions and ownership, and often more than one agency may be involved in managing wildland fire incidences. It is the result of collaboration, partnerships, and cooperation among states and federal fire management agencies. The U.S. Department of the Interior's Office of Wildland Fire is one such agency that plays an integral role in the nation's response to today's wildland fire challenges. What role does fire play in shaping natural resource land management? How does the U.S. Department of the Interior's Office of Wildland Fire meet its mission? And what is being done to reduce the risk to first responders and the public? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Brian Rice, Director of the Office of Wildland Fire within the U.S. Department of the Interior. Also joining me from IBM is Lisa Yarborough. Brian, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Lisa, welcome as always. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here. Brian, before we delve into specific initiatives, uh, perhaps you could provide us with a, a brief overview of the history and mission of the Department of the Interior's Office of Wildland Fire
1: Sure, I can do that. So the the Office of Wildland Fire is a product of many things that have happened here over the last several decades, Uh, most namely late 1980s. Most people remember Yellowstone when it burned. Huge fire within the West consumed hundreds of thousands of acres within Yellowstone National Park. Fast forward five or six years later and the South Canyon fire in Colorado, Storm King Mountain, right outside of Glenwood Springs, uh, large fire fatalities occurred at that fire, um, a large number of fatalities. And several other large fires, whether it was prescribed fires that escaped or other types of things that happened, really drove uh, fire policy at a national level. It really put fire— in the headlines, in front of everybody, in, in a very grand kind of way. And in the Department of the Interior, there's four bureaus that manage land. There's roughly 500 million acres of land that they're managing. Uh, National Park Service, Bureau of Indian Affairs, Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management. So at the time, the decision was made to stand up a singular office to manage the budget, to set the policy concurrently and through consensus with the bureaus to actually have a cohesive and cogent fire uh, management organization. So the office has been in place for roughly two decades, early 2000s, so uh, formally 2002. And the mission is really to focus on uh, a large-scale budget that, that supports all fire operations, all other land management activities in connection with their programs, but across the country within the Department of the Interior.
2: So, you know, operationally, how is your office organized? What's the scale and
1: scope of its operation portfolio, your budget? The the budget is uh, – in context, some would say it's very small. If I had a, de- a Department of Defense counterpart here, <laughs> they might say that it's it's a blink. But uh, just under $950 million uh, is the, the budget, and that supports roughly um, – 3,500 firefighters across the country in those different bureaus, in those different land management organizations. And I think it's important to to recognize you can't talk about the Department of the Interior without talking about the Forest Service, which is part of the Department of Agriculture, which also has a fire program, much larger in in scale, but it's uh, different. It's a single organization within within the Department of the Interior four bureaus, so four distinct organizations, four distinct land management missions, four distinct uh, sets of authorities that have created those organizations. So very complicated.
3: Brian, would you tell us more about your specific roles as the director of OWF? What are your specific responsibilities and duties, and how does your efforts support DOI's overall mission?
1: In the, the current role that I'm in, I'm the senior executive within the Office of the Secretary who uh, reports on wildland fire that manages the budget. I'm the the senior executive that's uh, responsible for all of the the dollars that go out and and how they're expended, and also uh, the policy that's developed. And part of it is looking at the policy at a national level. So what's good for the whole of the fire program versus individual bureaus, which then can take that large uh, national policy and then refine it to what they need locally. So in a lot of ways, if you think about it, it's sort of like saying, well, there's a Department of Transportation, mm-hmm. but yet driver's licenses are carried out at the state level, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's multi-tiered. So what's my, what's my role in it, you might ask? My role in it is that I'm continually talking to people. This is very much a people (laughs) job. I'm talking to uh, my counterparts in the bureaus. I'm uh, discussing their needs, identifying what are the actual challenges they're having in executing their FIRE program, as well as working with external stakeholders. State foresters, governor appointed representatives, tribal governments, tribal council members, uh, tribal Uh, forest program managers. The thousands of counties we have across this country, they're also involved in this. So uh, a lot of coordination and and really connecting the dots between the different groups that are involved.
2: Mm You know, saying that obviously leads to some challenges, you know, coordination and, and collaboration. But what would you say are your top, say, three challenges
1: that you face and how have you sought to address those challenges? So I would say the the three challenges really show up in in three places, right? I would say the first place is the workforce. Uh, the second place is the the technical side of things, and by that I mean we we have uh, an infrastructure, we have an IT infrastructure, information technology infrastructure that supports wildland fire. And then the third part of it is dealing with uh, our external stakeholders. So in in terms of dealing with the, the workforce side of it, to, to go into this a little bit further, historically in the fire program, every person that worked in fire historically worked in a natural resource program. Oh. So if you go back 100 years ago, the foresters who were – or the forest rangers or the rangeland managers or the wildlife biologists or the all, the all the natural resource managers, when there was a fire that happened, those were the folks who were involved in fire. Now today we have a much different dynamic. We have less people who are coming up through those different disciplines, and so we're relying on other uh, disciplines to support those fire functions. And that's not to say we didn't have – the finance and accountants and supply managers and all the other functions that went with it. But it's a different dynamic with the workforce now. So we're seeing that. We can talk a little more about that. In terms of our external stakeholders, the way the public perceives fire, the way the public uh, has grown around fire, the way we've seen urbanization across the country really creates a different dynamic. There's a, a nostalgic... Uh, view right, that there's a cabin in the woods, and that's where we're all going to go have a, a great place to to recreate and and to relax. and And what we find is many of those places are built in very fire prone areas, very fire prone zones. And so, uh, managing how we have that information go out to the public, and then the third piece, and we'll we'll get into this a little later. I, I hope is talking about the technology and what's actually behind wildland fire and what we. What we have, what we need, and how we're trying to get there—I think that's probably a good, a good place to. Wow!
3: Well, well tie thank into. you. Along with the challenges you've encountered leading such a critical mission, uh, support portfolio can be fraught with unanticipated or unexpected surprises that include the loss of life, limb, or property. To that end, Brian, what has surprised you the most since taking on your current role?
1: I will say the one single largest surprise that I've had in, in this position since I, since I took it, since I stepped into it, was the complexity of how everything comes together. 500 million acres of federal land, hundreds of millions of acres of private land, state land. Counties, other land jurisdictions, hundreds of volunteer and rural fire departments, 567 federally recognized tribes, 50 state governments, along with some territories. And how do you bring that all together in a way that makes sense where we have interoperability that's working across boundaries? Because remember, fire doesn't stop at a state boundary and it doesn't stop at a road, you know, because it's a a county road versus a federal road versus a state road. So the complexity that goes with it has been just incredible. And so that comes back to how do we address it? And it really comes down to communication and, and those soft skills that are so important on, on how we're working with our partners as well as our federal sister agencies to to work through all the issues. You know, given your, you know, your
2: journey, um, I was wondering – what core leadership lessons uh, would you share with us and and what's what's who who has inspired your leadership
1: approach? I'll start with the who first. Okay. So there's there's two people that have been very, I, I would say influential, but they've been influential uh, just from from afar. And so I, I would say the first one, Uh, right now is the current Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. Mm -hmm. And the the reason I say that is, so Alaska is different. You'll hear that with everybody who's from Alaska, who's lived in Alaska, who talks about Alaska. And I had the opportunity last year for the first time to testify uh, before a committee in Congress, and and Senator Murkowski is the, the chairman of that committee. And I had this moment when I was sitting there, and I distinctly remember it, where... I was reading my opening statement and, and speaking to the committee as a whole, and I had this thought, you know, I'm actually speaking to one of the, the, the premier land management senators, and this is just incredible to have this chance, right? And part of what was driving that is she's from a state where not everybody understands it. It's a place that has incredible opportunity but yet she has to work within a framework that requires consensus building. It requires collaboration. It requires all these pieces that go with it. And that parallels what I do in my position and in my previous positions numerous times over. Unbelievable. Great. Just an incredible role model in a lot of ways uh, for the, for that side of it. The second person is probably a little, little different than what you would think, but Wangari Maathai is her name, and so uh, she passed away here in 2011. But she's, she's a, a Kenyan-born uh, woman that worked in reforestation. So, in the way I, I came to know of her, is I worked on a couple assignments in eastern Tanzania. On reforestation and land management, and natural resource management. And so one of the things that Wangari Matai did was in and around Kilimanjaro, Mount Kilimanjaro, if you look at aerial photos from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, some of the earliest images, you'll see forested lands extending far, far out into the Serengeti and and other other geographic areas around there. And then over decades, those forested areas have been reducing, 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 reducing Mm -hmm. until there's been active management put in place to say, we need to conserve these forest management areas and put them in a place or put them in a state where they're, they're growing, they're resilient, they're doing different things. And so Wangari Maathai organized at the village level hundreds, if not thousands of women to do nothing but plant trees. And the, the lesson that I've learned from that is sometimes it is something that is so simple. Right. You don't have to have a massive program. You don't have to have uh, volumes and volumes of direction or theoretical points, but you can have one key action and it will spawn an entire uh, network of follow on activities. And so I've taken both of those. Senator Markowski's role in the consensus building and collaboration and looking, trying to talk to a large mass Coming from a different role or coming from a different place. I've tried to embody that. I've also tried to embody what's that one point, right? What's that one point in fire, in fire management? And right now, that, that one point is working with people. It's working, it's working with the staff that are being built, it's or that are being developed and trained and 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 mentored. It's also looking at that next generation that's coming in. So it's saying, How is the service delivery model that we have today? How is and I need to be changed into the future to actually bring on the next generation, the millennials, the Generation Z mm-hmm. that's coming in after them, right? Because the model we have today doesn't align with values, interests, some of the ways of, of doing business with, with newer folks that are coming on board. And so really looking at that, that personal piece of it, how do we get there? And that's, that's important.
2: What is the national strategy for wildland fire management? We will ask Brian Rice, Director of the Office of Wildland Fire within the U.S. Department of the Interior, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
0: What is public health surveillance? How do emerging health information technologies improve public health data? How is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention using innovative solutions to tackle public health surveillance challenges? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions with Brian Lee, Chief Public Health Informatics Officer with the Office of Public Health Scientific Services at CDC. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on 1500 a.m.
2: The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Brian Rice, director of the Office of Wildland Fire at the U.S. Department of the Interior. Also joining me from IBM is Lisa Yarber. So, Brian, um, it would be good to help our listeners understand better what is uh, wildland fire and what role fire plays in natural resource land management. Um, Some fires, as when I was doing some research for this, they need to be suppressed and sometimes they don't. So could you describe that decision space for whether to fight a fire or
1: not? Fire is very important. Fire is an incredibly important part of the ecosystem. If you look at our landscape across this country, whether it's rangeland or forested land, woodlands, which is that in-between types of forested land, they all uh, have some nexus to fire. Even, even farmers you see in the Midwest, they burn their stubble fields after the harvest, right, to, to cycle nutrients. There's, and so fire has this incredible, incredible place in the landscape. There's stands of different types of pine species that need fire. The heat actually releases the seeds from the cones. So if you look at a, a very commonly known species, the ponderosa pine, ponderosa pine has an extremely thick bark. It's in an ecosystem that needs fire, it cleans out the underbrush. It cleans out the lower, smaller vegetation and allows the, the tree to grow healthier and stronger as well as repopulate, germinate seeds from the, the cones that are coming down. So there's this incredible need for fire in the landscape. How do we get to that place where we actually say, this fire we actually need to address? And I would say in the federal space, every fire has some type of response mm-hmm. the response may be just to watch and monitor to ensure that the fire is not threatening infrastructure public uh, any other type of safety that goes with it but ultimately there's a decision that's made to be more aggressive or to be monitoring so how do we get there within the the federal estate and then even on state lands, and you you find it on private forested lands as well, there's always some type of management document. There's always some type of management direction. There's intent where maybe it's a a 20-year look at that particular land base, or it's a 100-year look. And within so many years, there's a, a focus on protecting certain species or improving different types of wildlife habitat, improving deer habitat or, or elk habitat is quite often a, a promising uh, note. Um, in other areas of the country, there's other species like within the Great Basin states across the, the country, Nevada, Utah, parts of northern Arizona, New Mexico. There's other species there as well. And so there are numerous reasons. Within those land management plans, so they forest management plans, land use management plans, all the different documents that go with it of which most are available online. You can you can find them by looking at any uh, Department of Natural Resource or any federal agency. You'll see a, a, an approved, updated plan. It will identify what's the priority when it comes to fire. So what we find across the country, though, is that roughly 97 to 98% of all fires are stopped right away. So we, we call that our initial attack success rate. So initial attack means uh, somebody spots a fire, public, an uh, aircraft, somebody calls in and says, we see smoke, we think there's a fire. 97, 98% of all those fires are stopped within 24 to 36 hours. We call it the first operational period. Uh, other than that, beyond that, those are the fires that usually are bigger and, and require more, more attention.
3: So on that, you might have answered my question, but we can elaborate a little bit more is that you know many many citizens see these raging wildfires on the news and consider these catastrophic fires as the norm. What percentage of the total fires in the in a year are suppressed versus the large ones that we see on the nightly news.
1: Right, right. That's a that's a great question and it's really important because the the news always shows the giant flames and <laughs> and it and it looks it looks really scary. It does. Right. Well, so that 97 98% is the amount that never make the news. So you only see 1 or 2% and and of that that actually makes the news there's probably only a fraction of that. The other thing that's of note here so, in a given year, in a normal year, 70 to 75,000 fires happen across this country. And a fire can be as small as a, a campsite mm-hmm. area, and then a fire can be as big as the large acreage, massive fires that make the news, but they all count as one. Mm-hmm. And so, we have that many. A huge percentage, a majority of them, actually happen on state lands. So a smaller percentage actually happen on federal lands. and then And then you might think, well, what happens if you have a fire that starts on federal land and then burns onto tribal land and then over to state land? It's usually identified as where the origin was. So there's, there's that piece of it as well. Uh, the, the last thing I might throw in here is a, a fact that's it's pretty important, and it gets into some of the other work How I was talking about. It's important to work with our public and our stakeholders and make sure that the, the public really has a, a stronger grasp on, on fire. And that's roughly 90 percent of all of our fires are human-caused yeah. cigarettes. Uh, dragging chains off of trailers, uh, campfires left unattended—any number of things can happen. But ninety, so ninety percent of those seventy-five thousand fires, of which majority happen on state lands, an- another type of public land, are human caused. So it really creates this this interesting situation where we talk about fire and say, can we fix this through managing the landscape? Is it through prevention, working with our our partners? There's there's a lot of a lot of points to it. It's complicated. So it is a
2: very important. Uh, I appreciate you setting those con- the context around, uh, you know, giving us some um, interesting things to think about. And we shift from that to your office and specific- specifically. And really, what is your strategic vision and what
1: are your key priorities for OWF? Right out of the gate, the, the first thing that we're looking at, at bringing together is this notion of interoperability. And interoperability to me means that when you see that big fire on the news, there's also a lot of people that are with it, right? And sometimes you see a fire engine, and the fire engine will usually have the logo on the, on the door so you know where it's from. Maybe it's from the state of California. Maybe it's from the state of Oregon. could be from Florida, and it was moved out west. All of those nozzles, all of the components that are on those engines fit together, Many of the tools that our firefighters use across the country have components that they can pull off of one truck and put onto another. They can pull out of their pack and work with another. And without that interoperability, this would be an extremely difficult challenge to to address. And so the interoperability, while much great, great, great work has been done on those pieces about interoperability we have uh, a mountain ahead of us to climb on other areas so as technology is developed as our workforce is growing and developing there's needs that are that are really sort of developing that haven't had the the legwork put in on it yet in terms of the interoperability needs, and so that's that's a major focus. Uh, mission within DOI and the Office of Wildland Fire is really uh, ensuring that we have safe and effective uh, fire management activities, right? Firefighter safety is paramount. We're not going to put a firefighter uh, in harm's way when we, when it's not needed. And then the public is, is right there with it if there's the, the need to ensure that the public's being kept safe in those situations as well. So that's really ultimate.
2: You know, I'd like to talk a little bit more about what you're calling inter, interoperability and, and really get into the fact that you know, given the interagency nature of wildland fire suppression, what is your vision, specific uh, efforts to improve coordination of wildfire uh, suppression among federal, state, tribal, local organizations?
1: The, the focus, in when I say interoperability, one of the areas that comes to mind immediately is, is thinking about how data is shared and managed. Um, I, I can give you a, a, a little vignette. At, at one point when cell phones were originally uh, able to take pictures and you were able to text a picture, which wasn't that long ago, right? What was happening is we would have firefighters that were out on the fire line, Within cell coverage, so more of a a local fire as opposed to a rural fire, and they would take a picture because they they were in a, a spot where they could see what the fire was doing and they'd take a picture and they'd send it to someone who then would post it on a blog, send it to the news, put it on some other available media. And all of a sudden, the whole public, everybody else saw it, but the the incident managers who were in camp were still operating on a cycle of gathering data. And so what was happening was we were just out of sync where we had this entire process in place to manage and keep people safe, but yet it wasn't moving at the same speed it needed to be as the rest of the, the technology advances. So one of the things that we're working on is um, a bit of... Coordination between the states, coordination between some of the tribes, but predominantly the federal agencies and the states, and that's about how we share data. There's numerous systems where data is captured, and, and ultimately it's enter once, use many. And by that, I mean information is captured in one place, and when it's captured, then it's replicated off numerous systems. And that's, that's really uh, what has been valuable overall. And can I ask a follow-up on that before we get to the – what are you doing – how are you standardizing systems and processes in that sense? It's a great question, and, and it's it's something that I spent an incredible amount of time working on. How do we standardize this? And, and part of that is – it's really hard to standardize processes, right? You ever jump in a car and the, the, the trunk button is either on the door in one car and it's under the, the latch in another place and it's under the seat in another, right? Everybody has, their, everybody has their preferences. Everybody has their things that they really appreciate. And so a lot of conversation, a lot of building consensus among all the stakeholders, those 50 states and, and numerous uh, territories, the tribes, the counties, other federal agencies. It's trying to create the best overall um, system where we have the most consensus. I have yet to find a way where we get 100% unanimous agreement, (laughs) but we're we're working on it. That's what we strive for.
3: So, Brian, you laid out your vision for improved interoperability across, I would say, the whole community. Mm. Could you elaborate on what are some of the key challenges to achieving that interoperability, and I mean not only within DOI, but state, local, and federal levels
1: so working across all those different levels i think you're hearing a lot of themes as i'm i'm talking today so there's there's the the people component so all of our our partners and our stakeholders working across and really identifying what those needs are trying to figure out okay what is it that actually is needed in each of those areas and is it does it financially make sense to do it those are two questions quite often we have the the wants and the needs, and then how do we actually develop those or create those? Do we fund it? Do we look at partnering in ways with other organizations to actually make it happen? So the building consensus is really incredibly important. I think the other piece of this that's really important is uh, working across the technology in a way that actually makes sense. And by that, I mean technology moves really fast. hmm So making the investments in terms of infrastructure or some of the the software that goes with it or some of the actual pieces of hardware, a lot of times by the time we have it in place and we're using it, it's already been updated. Right, so how do we actually work across that? And I think a, a great example is some of the cloud computing solutions that we've been able to, to um, maximize on since they've been available. I mean, it's as changes are implemented, as software and hardware is upgraded, we're moving right along with it. And, and fire moves quickly. We need to make decisions fast. And, and, and what's happening these days sort of goes back to a previous question. But part of it is we're seeing fire 12 months out of the year now. Mm -hmm. Historically, fire seasons were a lot shorter, but we're seeing fire in every month out of the year. So we need to be able to be nimble, move quickly, and engage many of the, the issues as they arise. How has Interior's Office of Wildland Fire improved coordination of
2: fire suppression operations? We will ask its director, Brian Rice, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Brian Rice, director of the Office of Wildland Fire at the U.S. Department of the Interior. Also joining me from IBM is Lisa Yarborough. So, Brian, you know, in the previous segments, you've talked about fires that must be suppressed and those that can burn. And and I would like to understand your efforts in your office to work towards fire prevention. Could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in that area?
1: Fire prevention is one of those elements of the fire program that is talked about in different ways. So the way I talk about fire, there's fire suppression. So when the fires are all burning and you see them on the news, there's fire suppression. Those are air tankers flying in the sky, helicopters moving people and dropping water, crews, smoke jumpers, all sorts of people that are engaged in fire. There's a preparedness component to fire. And preparedness is managing all of those resources before the fire, making sure people are certified, up to date, in shape, gears ready to go, technologies being developed. Then there's some of these other programs. I say programs, but they're actually uh, other activities within fire management. One of them is prevention. There's several programs: ready, set, go. WE-TIP is a a program that's uh, managed within the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Different places across the country have different types of of programs. And ultimately, it's awareness about temperature, time of the year, if there's fire bans in place, put in place by state governments or other things, and not having campfires, putting your campfire out. So that kind of uh, knowledge and information campaigns and then what we're doing in fire prevention is actually working at it from the next uh, path, and that's active management across the landscape. So there's numerous ways to deal with fire. So think about fire. This is the rudimentary way to think about fire is uh, the fire triangle, right? Heat, fuel, oxygen. If you take out any one of those, you won't have fire, right? So how do, you, how do we deal with it on the active management side of it? We're focusing on the fuel piece of it, right? So within that managing fuels or active management on the landscape could be thinning of timber stands. It could be uh, prescribed fire, which is where fire is intentionally placed on the landscape in a controlled setting, as controlled as fire can be controlled. And it actually cleans out some of those smaller fuels. And then in years when there actually is a bigger fire, there's more conditions that are prime for large fire activity, the fuel's not there to burn. So within the prevention piece of it, dealing again with people and then also dealing with the resource and managing it that way.
3: There's a term you you mentioned, prescribed burns. What are prescribed burns and what role do they play in preventing some of the large wildland fires?
1: Prescribed fire or prescribed burns, you can use the terms interchangeably, are incredibly important. They serve multiple purposes. They have numerous roles. Let me give you an example of, of one in particular and in, in what it actually did. In the Kenai or on the Kenai Peninsula in Alaska uh, near the town of Sterling, there was a, a prescribed or a, um, a fuel break that was built and so by a fuel break, and we'll get I'll bring it back to prescribed burns here, but what, what the fuel break did was it created this large swath of of land that had minimal trees, minimal vegetation on it. So as a fire comes through, there's nothing to burn. So the fire actually the fire activity actually drops down. So prescribed fireworks in very much the same way, but the intent behind it or the way you get there is not by removing the material by hand or by tractor or chainsaw or anything else, but rather by placing fire on the ground. So in certain areas, boundaries and control lines are set. A lot of times a road or a path or a tractor trail is used as an anchor point and a fire is intentionally lit and it's let to burn through that entire area. And it allows bigger fires as they would come through to actually stop or come down to a very lower, a much lower intensity or, you know, come down to a low intensity. So uh, what efforts are you pursuing to make sure these firefighters who are out there on the front line are safe? Originally, I, get, I can tell you from personal experience, uh, there's, there was a time where it was expected that firefighters would go out and work nonstop for days. And that's changed dramatically to what we have today. And it's changed for the better. It's changed in a way that focuses primarily on the safety of our firefighters. So work-rest ratios have been developed. So for every so many hours that are work, there's a required amount of rest time that goes with it. Uh, The types of gear has changed. So fire shelters and other protective equipment called Nomex, the the material that's used on the fire pants and, and shirts. Everything is changing in a way that focuses on safety. So that's one part of it. The training also that comes with it. So with bigger fires and and different types of fire activity, there's higher needs for communication, for technology, for other types of activities that go along with fighting fires. So that's another piece of it. Working alongside all of our aviation assets So a lot of times, like you see in the news, along with those big flames, you also see an air tanker flying over, or an aircraft that's either dropping water or a red uh, fire retardant mixture that that also slows the fire. So it's the complexity that's changing, also has increased the needs for safety. Uh, training. It's also increased the needs for development of the gear that goes with it. And then I would say that the technology that's also coming along with it, so the, we haven't touched on this yet, but the development and use of unmanned aerial systems is growing rapidly in managing how we go through and actually capture data, manage data, and use unmanned aircraft when historically it would have been two or three staff members in a helicopter flying around with an infrared camera. Looking at the landscape, and so it's changing quicker, yeah. and it's changing in a, a really fat, at a fast pace. Well, that's a great point about the new technology. What other tools can incident commanders use to help them fight the fires or suppress them? Incident commanders have a, a whole range of tools that come with them. They, and, and they rely on them heavily. So many of the incident uh, decision support tools that are out there, and by that, I mean, uh, there's one in particular called the Wildland Fire Decision Support System. And uh, right so in the government, like a lot of places, we have these acronyms. so people refer to it as Woofdis, right? but the Wildland Fire Decision Support System. But what that does is it captures all of the inputs, that are going into making a decision on a fire. Now, remember in the beginning, I was mm-hmm. talking about the land use management plans and tribal interest, county interest, state interest, federal requirements that go with it. We have all the local uh, residents that are involved as well. So how do we put that in a place that actually makes sense? How do we capture that in a way, right? And common sense might say, well, you put it in some kind of matrix and help you define a decision that captures the greatest good for everybody involved, and that's what the Wildland Fire Decision Support System does. It has mapping components that go with it and just brings it all together, so that's one of the places. We actually we have a couple other tools that, that the fire managers can use. So one is land fire and um, Landfire is uh, it's available on the web. Folks can can find it, and, and Landfire uh, is a, another mapping tool that actually shows types of land cover. So it shows if an area has forested land or range land, or if it's water or roads, and it shows population centers, and then it allows you to do different kinds of analytics that that go with it. Probably the third place I would I would point to in terms of decision tools. It's another decision support tool that looks at our integrated fuels treatment systems, right? And so when I talked about managing and uh, supporting prevention, right, by managing the landscape. So the the fuels treatment decision support system looks at all these areas across the country. So think about we have this patchwork quilt across our entire country that has state land, federal land, Tribal land, county land, private land, and if a fire crosses bits and pieces of those land jurisdictions, How can you make sense of where to do the work and how to leverage funds between federal and state and local and all those places? So this is another one of the tools that can be used to aid in the decision. It doesn't make all the decisions, but it it helps you get to the place to make a good decision.
3: So with all these decision support systems, it seems that um, the the community would be primed to start leveraging some of the cognitive capabilities that are coming out today uh, by industry. What are the plans for OWF or the, the community to start taking advantage of these cognitive capabilities that essentially learn over time in these decision support systems?
1: That is a great question, and that is, our, is probably one of our bigger challenges at the moment. I think that, I think we're primed to do a lot of that work at the moment. Um, this comes back to working with people and building consensus. Understanding what those, what those uh, tools are and how they can actually add value to the overall process, I think, is really important. I think the piece I would add to it is a, a lot of times the federal and state and tribal firefighting forces are compared to some of the, the military forces in ways, you know, the special forces and those pieces that go with it. I think it's important to note what we do on a shoestring budget. The, to put a war fighter in the field has a certain cost to it. To put a wildland firefighter in the field has a certain cost to it, and usually, the, it's a fraction of the other. And so, it's an interesting place where we do we do incredible work.
3: So, with the complexity of just within DOI working with four bureaus bringing this all together, can you elaborate for us on the funding and budget trends? within OWF, knowing that different bureaus needs needs different things?
1: So the way that fire is funded Mm -hmm. um, really took shape in early 2000. And at that time, uh, we had a large set of fires that came through in 1997, 98. And those on the heels of uh, Yellowstone in 1988, South Canyon and some of those Uh, Some of the other fires, Sierra Grande in 1994, a couple of the other uh, mid-90s fires, there was an intent um, by Congress, by uh, the White House at the time to actually focus fire funding and and really drive it forward. It made it a a, a national priority in many ways. So the way that fire suppression is funded, it's based on a 10-year rolling average. Right now. So it takes the last 10 years. How much did it cost? Average it. And then that's what the the expected or targeted funding amount is for the for the next year. There's different legislative fixes that have been proposed uh, by different members of Congress that look at treating that one or two percent of the fires. Remember, I talked about 97, 98 percent is is what we we can take care of, and we know we got them within you know first operational period. But those one or two percent, those make up a huge lion's share of the cost overall. So what happens if they are treated as a natural disaster and funded out of different places? So there's there's numerous proposals that uh, members of Congress have put forward, and so that could actually Change the way our business would operate, and so we're always looking and, and analyzing what would what would work and how would we make it work if we are directed to do that.
2: What does the future hold for wildland fire management? We will ask Brian Rice, director of the Office of Wildland Fire within the U.S. Department of the Interior, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
0: What is public health surveillance? How do emerging health information technologies improve public health data? How is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention using innovative solutions to tackle public health surveillance challenges? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions with Brian Lee, Chief Public Health Informatics Officer with the Office of Public Health Scientific Services at CDC. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on 1500 a.m.
2: The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Brian Rice, director of the Office of Wildland Fire at the U.S. Department of the Interior. Also joining me from IBM is Lisa Yarborough. So, Brian, you know earlier you described your vision for uh, your office. Um, I- I'd like to talk about what are some of your near-term objectives, and for, say over the next two years, maybe within the next
1: five, what do you really want to focus on? Well there's a couple of things that I think are really important. I mean overall, I want to see the uh, the fire program of the future. We have an incredible amount of people that are are going to be entering the workforce. When we look at the millennials, the the Gen Z and and everybody that's coming in, we we have a huge opportunity to really shape the sort of the the catchers met for all those folks that are coming in. And so I think that's something that's Ingrained in everything that we're doing and talking about. So, how are we managing communication? How are we ensuring that um, mobility needs, and in, in terms of. Uh, geographic mobility across the country is being addressed. But uh, in terms of the program itself, I think there's a couple places where there's some really um, good opportunities really fast that that we can be working on. And one is better integration of the use of unmanned aerial systems or or drones, as some people refer to them. Mm -hmm. And part of that is uh, hobby drone operators, folks that have a quadcopter or a a small fixed wing UAS Everybody has one. Everybody's kids have them. They're they're everywhere, and and so that's and that's great. There's there's opportunity in many ways of affixing uh, infrared cameras, video cameras, uh, developing better digital elevation models, all the pieces that come with that. I think there's huge opportunity. I also think that there's uh, huge opportunity leveraging drone or UAS assets um, in communications as well. So quite often. The fire community uh, relies on line of sight communication tools. Well, if you raise something up three or four hundred feet, maybe six hundred feet, all of a sudden that communication web and that network just grows immensely. And I think there's a, another part of it, and this one. Um, is really important to me, and that's uh, focusing on location of our people and where they are on incidents and ensuring their safety. Remember, my number one priority is firefighter safety and ensuring that if people are inserted into risky situations, how do we mitigate that? Um, We have a a secretary right now who who came from the the Special Forces and and incredibly... uh, Visionary in many ways, and, and fortunately, everybody is is connecting on how how we engage the use of UAS assets. But then in terms of where our people are, it's, it's with a, a transponder or a chip, you know, and it's different ways of doing that. But actually having real-time information of crew X is in certain location, crew Y is in another location, and being able to make those real-time decisions, as opposed to historically— It was based on a cycle as data was gathered uh, throughout the night. Numbers were crunched. Morning briefing. Everybody was sent out on their assignments, but as we know, weather changes, other external factors change. So, how do we get there? And, and with the development of technology, and going back to that example of the the firefighter who had the cell phone taking a picture, I mean that that was it right there, and that was that was a decade ago that that happened. And so, you know, we need to be looking at how we can do things quicker and faster. Um, high speed, low drag is the is the term that I like to use quite often. Um, and then the other thing that goes with it, uh, especially with the UAS components, is talking about um, how do we integrate the data that goes into where fire locations are. So one of the campaigns we had earlier last year was, uh, if you fly, we can't. And this year it's nowhere to fly. And that is uh, whether it's using geofencing capabilities or other types of of Technology and data sharing. If you have a boundary of a fire, we can project that because a, a TFR is created—a a, a temporary no-fly or a temporary flight restriction area—and so if a hobby drone operator is is operating a, a quadcopter or a UAS in those areas, it stops all operations all aviation operations. So those air tankers, the helicopters, all those things go on the ground because all it takes is one of those with a a midair strike and it, you know, we can cause serious accident or fatality. So definitely looking on that.
3: So Brian, you mentioned a lot today about the, the need to collaborate within your organization, within USDA state and local. What's being done to find new ways for government and industry to collaborate more to help fulfill your vision for OWF?
1: So I think there's a, a couple ways that I'm I'm looking to have a broader engagement. Um, and part of this, we, you know, we learned from the past to, to pave the way to the future. And so part of the past is the federal land management agencies at one point, as I, as I was saying, every person who worked in fire had a natural resource component. Well, as that workforce is changing. Those skill sets are also changing. So we need to be looking beyond our our current workforce and our current uh, infrastructure to actually actually work on the landscapes. So at one point, the the members in the federal agencies or the, the staff in the federal agencies were the experts. They, they were the ones who went to school and studied all of it and knew the most about that particular landscape. Well, now we have plenty of citizen scientists. We have plenty of folks that live in the local areas. We have other folks working in different areas. And they're able to bring in expertise. They're able to bring in uh, technology and things that they've been working on. We still have to work through all the all the mediums of how that happens, whether it's contracting or agreements or those types of partnerships. But that still needs to take place. And I think this has been showcased. The one place I haven't talked about yet is um, in 2009, uh, the the Flame Act was passed, and the, within the Flame Act, it directed Congress directed both the Department of Interior of the Interior and the Department of Agriculture to develop a cohesive wildland fire management strategy. So within that. We've, it, it really uh, runs on three tenets. There's three tenets of the cohesive strategy that drive everything that we do. So it's looking at communities, so fire-adapted communities. It's making sure that communities are safe and they've managed in and around their communities and they have ingress and egress routes and then other things that are more community-focused that we don't get involved in, whether it's their building codes or zoning requirements. But that's, that's the, their, their privilege and their right to manage that. It's looking at resilient landscapes So how do we have landscapes that are resilient within uh, the wildland fire construct? And then the last piece of it is safe and effective response to fire. In putting that strategy together, stakeholders from across the spectrum are brought together. So industry, states, tribes, locals, federal space, they're all brought together. I think there's more opportunity, but so far it's been a really good step in terms of how we get there.
2: So you may have alluded to this a couple of times, but I'd like to ask you, what are you doing? What programs specifically are you pursuing to
1: make sure you have a well-trained and, and technically capable f- workforce? So in terms of our, our workforce, um, there's a couple different places. So one of it is uh, we have developed quite a bit of uh, training material. Both within the, the the federal space, and when, when I say that, I I usually refer to them as the Big Five: Bureau of Land Management, Fish and Wildlife Service, National Park Service, Bureau of Land uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs, and then the U.S. Forest Service. The the predominantly five large uh, land management agencies. So a lot of the training and content has been developed uh, by those particular groups and organizations, and in Um, management functions within those groups, right? And so that's focusing on who's coming in. We've also developed quite a bit of partnerships with other academic institutions. So we're constantly trying to recruit through uh, presidential management fellows programs, the different pathways programs, right? All the ways of bringing in uh, top-talented folks into the program. There's been several other acts that have been passed to bring in veterans and um, and give them opportunities to serve as well um, in addition to their their service already given. And so those are some of the ways we've been able to bring in this next this next workforce. It's a great segue into my next and final
2: question, which is uh, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service and perhaps in at the Department of the Interior?
1: Well, I say go for it. I think uh, my thoughts on this, the Department of the Interior has, in my opinion, I'm, I might be a little biased here, but the <laughs> Department of the Interior has one of the most incredible missions that you can find in government. When you look through all the bureaus that are there and you look at the missions of each one of them, there's an active management component that runs through several of them. There's a conservation component. There's a sort of a protection component, you know, that really seeks to hold things, uh, you know, status. There, There's a, an entire gamut. There's even an education piece. Anything that's done um, across government, you can find it done in the Department of the Interior. There's two, there's two, uh Places I'd, I'd point you towards. So one is um, in the late 1980s, a, Nash, a group of National Park Service historians put together a, a document, and the, they called it the Department of Everything Else. And it looks at the history of the Department of the Interior, whereas many of the the other departments that we see today actually originated in the Department of the Interior. So it's an incredible place, rich in history. And the the other the other part of it, a, a previous secretary referred to it as America's Department. So so my cell is you know America's Department. It's a great place. Um, public service is rewarding. It's challenging. Uh, it has all the all the facets of just an incredible opportunity. I'm totally thankful to be a part of it, and you know, being able to talk about
2: it. Again. Well, I want to I want to thank you for coming in today. It's great conversation, but more importantly, Lisa and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank yes, you. Yes,
3: thank you for your service. Yeah, thank you.
2: This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Brian Rice, director of the Office of Wildland Fire within the U.S. Department of the Interior. My co-host today from IBM has been Lisa Yarbrough. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
1: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
0: What is public health surveillance? How do emerging health information technologies improve public health data? How is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention using innovative solutions to tackle public health surveillance challenges? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions with Brian Lee, Chief Public Health Informatics Officer with the Office of Public Health Scientific Services at CDC. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 a.m. on 1500 a.m.